So it's been a few weeks since I split a sermon in half, and today I must pick up on part two as we continue through Hebrews chapter 12. In fact, I'd forgotten we hadn't done these verses, and I spent a good few hours earlier this week working on Hebrews chapter 3, forgetting I hadn't yet preached Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 18. So, anyway, it's all good work. Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 18, headlines, made like us in all things. Let me say again that Hebrews has this headline for us. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is better than what? Everything. Everything. So far in Hebrews 2, we've seen the man was created for glory, honor, and rulership under God with the angels serving him. But because of sin, man has been made for a while lower than the angels, subject to death, to mortality. We do not see man in the purpose for which God made him, ruling, sharing the authority and the glory of God as God's child. But we see Jesus, who though eternal God was also made for a while lower than the angels, so that he would suffer with us and for us and die our death, so defeating sin and death. Jesus is now crowned with glory and honour and rules over all creation. Last week, although it was a kind of diversion, it was still really on the subject, we looked at how the lordship of Jesus is a very personal matter, very practical matter, since he is our master and we are his servants. So we go on together. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let's headline that. Jesus became flesh and blood like us. Isn't that it's an interesting expression, flesh and blood? It's come over from the Hebrew into English and to Shakespeare. So it's the way we describe being human, isn't it? Flesh and blood. He became man and continues as man. He overcame the devil who overcame us in Eden. Jesus, through death, overcame death. Swallowed it down, ate it up. Jesus frees us from slavery through the fear of death. Let me just... Say those a bit more. The Son of Man became the Son of God to bring the sons of men to become sons of God. Jesus became a man for us and remains a man for us. Hebrews here calls us the children. That is, like we read earlier from 1 John, the children of God. Those whom the Father has loved and chosen for himself. Those he gave to his Son to die for. Those he has called out of unbelief and darkness into light and revelation through the gospel of God. Yet we are, though the children of God, we're still flesh and blood. Why don't you give yourself a pinch and check? (laughs) If you say, ouch, I'll believe you. And we're subject still to the influences of sin. And we're still subject to mortality. We were under the power of the devil. 
How was God going to rescue his children? By sending Jesus, the eternal God, in flesh as our brother and our redeemer, so that he, Jesus, would defeat sin, Satan, and death in our place for us. So bringing salvation, rescue, freedom, wholeness to those who are the children of God. Now Jesus did not become a man just to achieve a task. It was not a temporary status. He remains now and forever a man. Since he's our head, our representative, he's our firstborn, he's our brother. His death on the cross is our death to sin and the power of Satan. His resurrection is our being raised to eternal life and the end of death for us. His seat at the Father's right hand in the highest heaven will be shared with those who are his. Where he is, there we shall be. I'm not making it up, that's his promise. It was essential that God in bringing many sons to glory should make our Redeemer man, not just for time, but forever. Jesus will eternally be the God-man. He will not give up our human nature. The Redeemer became man not just for a time, but forever. We worship Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God-man. That's the remarkable thing in Philippians 2. It's, it will honour the Father that at the name of Jesus, which is a human name, it's not even a unique name, that at the name of Jesus, this Jesus, every knee will bow. Heaven, earth, under the earth. Every knee will bow to a human name, to a human figure, who is yet still eternal God the Son. Jesus has defeated the devil. You can get excited somewhere along the way if you want to. John Brown in his commentary says, The Son of God assumed human nature, a nature capable of suffering and death. He became a man that he might die, and by dying, destroy the power of the great enemy of man and deliver his people from his dominion. Jesus said he would do it. When they were suggesting that Jesus was driving our demons by the power of the devil, Jesus replied quite the opposite. He knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, and I like that expression, Jesus just pointed to him and said, go. Then the kingdom of God has come among you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. You can read this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. Uh, I've just read from Luke. You can read in Matthew and Mark. In Matthew, it says this, this way. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. People talk a lot of nonsense about we've got to bind the strong man. No, we don't. We don't do that. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. 
He's the one who's bound Satan and is now spoiling, plundering his goods. And you know what? The evidence of that is you are sitting here today. You're not somewhere else and you're not wasting your life because Jesus is plundering what were Satan's goods. What was under his power is no longer under his power. You've been brought out from under the power of Satan to the, to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus bound the strong man and he did it at the cross. The devil was the strong man that the greater man, capital M, has overpowered. He's bound him and he's plundering what he held as his. Let me say this again. This is not something that's going to happen in the future. That's not how I understand Revelation 20. It's not something Satan is not running around doing exactly what he pleases right now. He's not. Jesus has bound the devil and is plundering what belonged to him. Otherwise, you'd not be here. We learn this in going through 1 John. The one who practiced sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. Is he doing it? Has he done it in your life? Yes. Okay, I'll get excited and you can watch. (laughs) Jesus has destroyed, is destroying and will destroy all the works of the devil. The strong man has been overpowered, bound. And he has to watch as those who were under his power are being delivered from his kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light under God's dear son. Jesus has defeated death. Let's read it again. Since the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death, through death, we think sometimes think Jesus lost on the cross and won in the resurrection. That's not what the Bible says. Through death, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus has defeated death. That phrase, subject to slavery all their lives through the fear of death, takes a bit of unpicking. Scripture here is not saying we're slaves to the fear of death. And uh, a lot of modern translations, like the one I'm reading, New American, get it right. But a lot of commentators get it wrong. They say, oh, you're slaves to the fear of death. Well, I don't don't see people walking around the street over there. Oh, I'm scared of dying. Oh, I'm scared of dying. That's not what it means. It means they subject themselves to almost anything rather than face the fact that they're mortal. They'll chase pleasure. They'll chase entertainment. They'll chase riches. They'll chase fancy cars. They'll fill their lives and their focus and their attention with anything rather than face the fact that last time we checked, the mortality rate is 100%. The only exceptions will be those who are alive when Jesus comes. But until that day, yeah, we all die. Slaves to anything rather than face the fact of who we are and what we are. People fill their attention with anything rather than think of that. The reason some people don't like to talk about someone's illness or death or a funeral is that deep inside them there's a fear that I'll be next. Yet the wisdom of scripture says it's good to attend a funeral because it makes you face eternal realities. 
It reminds us that we're mortal and we have a maker to whom we must return to give account. The lie that accompanies evolutionary theory that we came from nothing and are not made by God is that we go to nothing. And that's reassuring. If I go to nothing, it doesn't, it's okay. I'm, I just cease to exist. The Bible does not support your theory, my friend. In the moment that a person dies, they discover the truth. And they find out whether they've staked their whole life upon the truth or a lie. As Christians, we are liberated from the fear of death, which means we don't have to fill our lives with nonsense. We can live with real big issues, eternal realities, and be happy in them, be comfortable with them. I'm going to die, probably. I, I may not see the coming of Jesus. You might think that's a bit pessimistic. Well, I don't know. Chances are, mm. but you know what? It doesn't bother me. Because as Paul confessed, this is my confession, absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord. Amen. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen. And yet, you have to die to gain. Because this body is still subject to mortality. I know this sounds like a conundrum, but even if we die, we don't die. You see, death in its fullest application means not only the end of physical life, you know, lung, heart and brain activity cease, but the, and the body ceases to function and actually begins to decay. But real death, the whole deal, is you enter into spiritual or soul death. You, 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 you suffer the, the loss of any possibility of God's grace, of communication, of relationship with him. To be dead outside of Christ is a terrible thing. The words the Bible uses to describe it are here. Fear, darkness, anguish, solitude, regret, despair. Death for an unbeliever is, is, is to be compared to a dark and lonely prison waiting for the day of judgment. Yet when the Christian loses physical life, they enter into the presence of their Lord. They're more alive than ever. And they're only waiting to resurrection day to get their full inheritance too. So death for a Christian is compared in the Bible to sleep. A Christian's body is sown into the ground in sure and certain hope of a new and glorious body at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So because we have been raised to life through the resurrection of Jesus, to new life, spiritually. And because Jesus promises us the resurrection of our bodies at his coming, to eternal life with him, we don't have to fear death. We're freed from that gut-level response. We therefore don't need all the diversions to keep us from thinking about serious matters. Because the most serious matters settled as far as we're concerned. It'll be okay to die. Now that doesn't mean I'm not afraid of dying. The business of dying, mm, but once the dying's done and I'm dead, I'm going to be alive. Yeah? The dying might be a difficult process. But when I breathe my last and close my eyes, I'm going to be with him. Amen. 
So we can live in the full knowledge and reality of life and death and eternity, confident and assured in the Lord Jesus and in his great promises. Verse 16. Assuredly, he does not give help to angels. Remember Hebrews 2 started out with angels. You know, Jesus hasn't come for angels. Angels don't get a chance at salvation. The fallen ones will go to the lake of fire. Uh, The holy ones remain the holy ones and serve those of us who are the heirs of salvation. Assuredly, Jesus does not give help to angels. He gives help to the descendants, to the seed of Abraham. Remember, at creation, angels were ordered to serve man. But because of our sin and fall, we were made a little lower than the angels, subject to suffering to death. But our Lord Jesus came and he was made with us a little lower than the angels. God in flesh, the Son of Man. And suffered and died in our place. Jesus does not help and support angels. He helps and supports us. For he became one of us. Not like us as if he was pretending to be. But actually like us. Thoroughly human. We need to remember that in the context of the New Testament, the phrase the descendant or the descendants of Abraham does not refer to the Israeli state. It is someone, it is not born of natural descent. That's not what the New Testament points that out to mean. From the fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The seed of Abraham is Jesus himself and everyone who's in Jesus. That's the children of Abraham. Those who are the children of faith. They're the children of promise, not of natural descent, but of God's sovereign work of grace. Galatians says, therefore be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. You'll have children from all the nations, Abe. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That has ramifications for a whole lot of, 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 of kind of, you know, Prophetic theories that go around. In Philippians 2, Paul writes to the Philippians, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, true Jews, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Some people make a great big fuss about the heirs of Abraham and the promises that were made to Abraham and and that they talk about the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and so on. The New Testament consistently states again and again that Jesus is the heir, the seed with a capital S, singular, of Abraham and that all who are in Jesus by faith are heirs of Abraham too. When Paul writes at the end of Galatians, peace be upon all, all the Israel of God, he's actually talking about the church of Jesus Messiah. When Hebrews says here he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, that's not a promise to an Israeli nation. That's, that's talking about us, Christians. Children of God and children of Abraham, heirs of his promise and those who fulfill his promise, the promise God made to him rather, through faith in Jesus. He, Jesus, and I want you to notice this, Jesus gives help to us. Jesus gives help to us. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
Let's finish reading through the scripture. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren. In some ways. Please react. In all things. It's that Greek phrase again. All things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer's coming back to verse 14. He had to be made like us, flesh and blood. Here he says he had to be made like his brethren in all things for a specific purpose, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. There's much more about Jesus being a high priest to come in Hebrews, chapter 4 through to 6 and 7 and so on. And I've got to come back to that later, so I'm only going to say something about it today. Here the writer points to Jesus being both the sacrifice by which propitiation, which means reconciliation, the, putting, the covering and putting away of sins, atonement, the restoring of relationship, all of these things apply to the death in, in blood of Jesus on the cross. He was the sacrifice, but he was also the high priest offering himself as the sacrifice. No lamb, no animal, you know. Jesus offered himself. High priest and sacrifice in one. Jesus was made a merciful and faithful high priest. How? By being made like us. So that he would stand with us, identify with us, understand us, sympathize with us, make his blood sacrifice for us, but then continue still to help he was made like us in all things. Verse 18, For since he himself was tempted, tried, tested, in that which he has suffered, endured, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This verse should be on your memorizing scripture list. Seriously. Book this down. I'm going to remember this one. Because you'll need it. Since he himself, Jesus, was tempted, tested, tried in that which he has suffered and endured, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I almost uh, kind of took a clip from a a Kirk Franklin song, which has the whole big choir going, he's able, you know. I just wanted to kind of get that out there today. He's able. Why? Because he knows. He understands. You know, you, we, we, our problem with a lot of politicians is we, we are convinced they do not live ordinary lives. They haven't a clue the, what, what we, what, the way we live. Right? I'm not naming any names, but it's like they live in another world. Somewhere. The Westminster bubble, they call it, don't they? Jesus does not live in the heaven bubble. He knows us. He has intimate knowledge of what it is to be tested and tried. And he's able to help us. Let me read a bit to you from Hebrews 4. I can't preach. David, don't preach it. You haven't got time. Right, just read it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who's been tempted, tested, tried in all things. Do you see the word again? No exceptions. As we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. To what? Help us. Every trial? Yes. Every trial. We tend to use tempted nowadays, speaking only of being pulled towards some particular sinful activity. And we usually, usually think of sexual immorality, which is not the only sin there is. But the word in the Bible, though it includes being pushed and pulled towards evil, is much wider than that. It means every test and trial in life. Every difficulty, every obstacle. Every time that we, we, we're kind of thrown back and, 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 and we're thrown into some kind of fear or despair or doubt or whatever. Every difficulty is this test, this temptation. Thing. Was every kind of sin pushed to Jesus? Yes. And he overcame it. Was every kind of trial in life faced and overcome by Jesus? Yes. That is what scripture teaches us to believe. And the problem is when we don't, we go with our weak thinking. Because we don't actually think in our hearts, he knows, he understands, he can help us. He has endured all things so that he might help us in all things. He made propitiation. Oh, sorry, I put that there as well. You can't say to the Lord Jesus, you do not know, you do not understand. He does. I wonder where that lie came from. Hmm. You can't say it to him. The Bible repeatedly, especially Hebrews, that's why Hebrews is such a magnificent book. It says three times through in the book of Hebrews, he knows, he understands, he has been there, and he will take you through it. Jesus made propitiation for our sins. Long word, isn't it? By his death on the cross, he put away our sins. The devil's authority over us is ended. The power has been shut down. We now serve a new master who empowers us and helps us to live by his grace with the help of the Spirit of God. The more that you believe these things, the more you will prove what Jesus promised, that freedom comes through knowing the truth. And if I may use this expression, and damning the lie. Condemning the lie. Jesus is our partner in trials. Oh, please don't think that somehow there's an eyeball watching you from the sky. That's a terrible kind of pagan symbolism thing. Jesus has flesh. Jesus is human. He retains sympathy and identity with us. He's our partner in our trials. What bit of I am with you don't you get? The Lord Jesus partners with us and helps us by speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. 
And by his strengthening us and giving us wisdom and courage, he also does exactly the same things through the prayers and help and encouragement of our friends. Both ways. You're not allowed to choose. You've got to take both. Jesus works through his church and without his church at other times. And you can't separate That's why when any one of us in a, some hard trial of life and faith, the most foolish thing we can do when we're under such difficulty and pressure is to separate ourselves from our brothers and sisters and friends in Christ. That's precisely where the devil wants you to go. We need partners in our trials. And Jesus will enable my brothers and sisters to be on his behalf, in his name, partners with me in my trials. The Lord Jesus himself is our partner. He'll help us by the Holy Spirit and through one another. Let me just nail this lie right down now. You will not be and you will not do better on your own. It is a lie. I'll be alright if I just stay away. No, you won't! Where did that stupid idea come from? You will not work it through better on your own. It's a lie. You need the Lord Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit, whom he gives to you as a helper. You need Christian friends who will pray with you, challenge you and encourage you. You need the scriptures of truth. You need to hear this Bible, uh, read the Bible, hear the Bible, hear preaching. To reform your thinking every time where our brains are being washed, our minds are being cleansed. The problem with you Christians is your brain washed. Oh yes, please. <laughs> Keep washing my brain, Holy Spirit. <laughs> so that you stop believing and acting upon those ridiculous and dangerous lies. You need to throw aside any thought that he cannot or will not help you in your time of trials. And take hold of those truths from these verses today. I'm just going to list them for you. That's ahead of myself. Let me just paraphrase what we've read today, these four verses. Jesus took hold of the same flesh and blood as us. God the Son became truly man. Through death he's rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus frees us from the slavery which we're under because of the fear of death. Slavery to nonsense and foolishness and amusement. Anything rather than face the hard truth. He gives help to his people who are, as well as being the children of God, the children of Abraham, according to promise. He gives help to us. He was made like us in all things. He's a merciful and faithful high priest, priest who's made propitiation for our sins. And, but he's also our partner since he himself was tried in every way. He's able to come to the aid of those who are in trials. He is our lamb who has reconciled us to God and forgiven us of our sins. In another scripture it says, freed us from our sins through the blood of his atoning sacrifice. He is our liberator. He's freed us from the power of sin, the power of the devil, and the power of death. Shut down, shut down, shut down. He's freed us from our past slavery and from the fear of death itself. He's freed us to a new life in him and with him. No longer held by those controlling powers of the past, but now held under the loving lordship of Jesus, our great and good shepherd and leader. And he is our leader. 
I said a few weeks ago, and I know some weeks ago, which is why I'm saying it again today. I think that's the bit of this whole gospel that people really miss. He is our leader. We are saved, we're being saved, we will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a work that he's doing now. He's leading us through life. That old great Welsh hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. He's our leader. We don't need a Moses. We have the real Joshua, Jesus. We are safe when we walk with him. When we are asking for his help at all times. When we submit to being led by him. Don't go back. Go on with him. The Bible has some rather harsh words to say about someone who goes back to their old sins. You heard them? I'll give you two of them. It's like a pig going back to its dirt. It's like a dog going back to its vomit. To have tasted the forgiveness of Christ. To have understood something of the, the freedom that there is in knowing him. And yet to go back to your old way of life. To soak yourself back in your old sins. Don't go back. Go on with him. He's our partner. He's our priest who prays for us. He's our partner and helps us. He is able. I wish I'd done that choir clip. He is able. He gives help. We can receive help, mercy and grace to help in time of need. How? By boldly coming. Boldly I approach the throne and claim the throne. Well, the crown's in the future. Right now I come and I lay hold of mercy and grace to help by coming boldly to God's throne of grace. Not timid. Not even apologetically. You know, some of us at the time, um, at times may, may say under our breath, oh, God help me. I've said it many times before, turn it into prayer, you get somewhere. I need help all the time to get through life. Like all the time. He is able to help us in all things. He can. He will. If you'll ask him and trust him. And if you'll follow him. He's our lamb, our liberator, and our leader. Amen. Amen. So, here's the thing. How much help did you need last week and how much help did you ask for? Because there may be, there's like, a, there's like a kind of supply gap here. All help is available to you. He's willing. He's able. He can help you. What's the limitation? My asking. My receiving. My humbling myself to say with the old hymn, I am weak, but thou art strong. I need help here, Lord. And it comes. It'll come from Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit. It'll come from Jesus through his people, through your brothers and sisters, your friends. You'll get a phone call. Somebody, I just felt I should phone you. Are you okay? And you don't do the polite Western thing, oh, I'm fine, thank you. 
Thank you for asking. You say, well, no, actually, but, you know, thank you for your concern. And I'd appreciate if you did pray for me because I'm going through stuff. Yeah? When we are honest in our needs, Jesus is faithful to be our helper. In the same way that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, according to his promises, he is faithful and just to do what we ask of him when we need his help in the trials and temptations of life. Whether it's sexual temptation, despair, discouragement, whatever it is, he is able. His resources are available to us. Come boldly to receive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess your word back to you today, Lord Jesus, that you are full of understanding and sympathy for all of our weaknesses. The lie is that you don't understand and you don't care. You do understand us. You do care. But where we might be able to offer sympathy to one another, you can help us from heaven. Grace and mercy are available to us to help us in any and every time of need. It's part of what you want for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. Deliverance, freedom, supply of your grace. We thank you. Grace is available to us not just to clear up our messes, but to strengthen us for our, for our, to endure to keep on walking, to keep on fighting, to keep on working. Your grace is available to us in every moment of every day. You want us to be bolder in asking you and receiving from you. You want us to be more confident. We acknowledge it, Lord. You want us to be far more confident that you are our helper, that you do not forsake us, that you're never far from us that your promises are good and true, even in our weakest part of the week. Jesus, you are our saviour. Not just past tense, but present tense. You are still saving us. You're still rescuing us. You're still strengthening us. You still want to enable, enable us in our fight with sin. We thank you, you will save us. You will preserve us to your eternal kingdom. Now, I'm praying this prayer for those, mostly, who are already Christians. Perhaps you have not yet given yourself to the Lord Jesus. You've not asked him yet to forgive you your sins. You've never asked him that you might become one of his people. Learn to follow him. Learn to receive his help and his guidance. Why don't you just walk to him right, talk to him right now? You see, he's not distant. Though he's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in the highest heaven, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is wherever he wants to be. And through the Holy Spirit, he speaks to whoever he wants to speak to. But right now, he's calling you from your heart to submit to him, to ask him to become your shepherd, your Lord your leader. 
Why don't you pray a prayer to him right now? Lord Jesus, I give myself to you. Please come and lead me and free me and teach me how to live for you. Teach me how to live right and well with hope and dignity. Amen.